Hi, welcome back to another episode of EnviroMind. I'm your host, Ananya Shreeder. Last time, I talked to Professor Franz DeWall about equity, empathy, and collaboration in non-human primates. This week, I'm honored to have another amazing guest with me. I'll be talking with Professor Mark Beckoff from Boulder, Colorado, to learn more about the animal kingdom. Professor Beckoff is the author of many books, including Wild Justice and The Animal Manifesto, and he has worked closely with Dr. Jane Goodall to found Ethologists for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Professor Beckoff, thank you so much for being here. I know that you're a big advocate for starting to treat animals with more respect as a whole, like as a human race, and I read an excerpt from your book, The Animal Manifesto, where you talk about how we need to reach out to animals in order to start appreciating more the beauty and wonder of life in animals and how it'll, it'll really help us as humans. So when I was reading that, one of the thoughts that came to mind was the same kind of respect for human life and appreciation of it can go a long way between humans themselves and showing compassion to each other. So can you elaborate a little more on what you think the value is of really showing compassion towards animals, even though they're different than us? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that compassion begets compassion. So the more compassion and empathy you display to other uh, beings, um, the more it will spread. I, I really feel that way. And, and in that book, The Animal Manifesto, I talk about the compassion footprint um, in contrast to the um, carbon footprint. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's a win-win for all. And I think in these, you know, in these horribly difficult times now, um, people really need those connections to other animals and to nature. I mm-hmm. mean, I, I really believe there's a lot of benefits for the people to have those kinds of really deep connections. Do you think one of the reasons that we see it's hard for humans to connect with animals in the wild is because they're different than us or we perceive them as different? Yeah, I mean, I think one reason is is because of a lot of the misrepresentation of animals in the wild. I mean, I've studied many different species in the wild and when they're peaceful and compassionate and playing or courting or doing something nice, um, it's not such a, it's, it doesn't really um, generate a lot of attention. But when they fight and they're aggressive or, or there's some kind of all out battle among the animals, it seems to make the news because it's flashy. Um, and it's just, you know, it, it taps in to somewhere that I don't know. I don't know where it taps into in terms of people's, uh, you know, getting peace, people's attention. Listening back on this interview as I'm editing, I think this point of misrepresentation is really important to reflect on because it sounds familiar. We also have historically represented different racial and cultural groups in the media to create a preconceived notion that has led to discrimination, violence, and inequality. It's rhetoric that stunts our ability to show compassion, and it's something we have to challenge at a large scale, but also individually to unpack the biases it's created within us. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but also because pe- most people don't have contact with wild animals. I mean, they, they, I, they just don't. I mean, I think the people who are having contacts with wild animals now that they're coming into their old homes that we stole from them um, are realizing that these um, non-human animal beings are quite different from the way in which they're portrayed. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I know for a long time in the field of science, the study of animals and their more human or qualities that we associate being human was resisted for a really long time. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of your writing, you talk about how animals, in fact, do have, you know, the capacity to navigate these social situations that we consider really complicated. And I'm Mm kind of curious to learn more about what are some more specific instances of how you've seen animals approach topics like justice in their societies? Yeah, well, I mean, there's no doubt that a lot of animal societies live by the golden rule in many ways. You know, um, if, if, if I do something to you that's nasty, then you might do it back to me, and we don't want that to happen. And a lot of my um, research deals with fair play and, and being fair in terms of sharing food, um, and being fair and not playing, you know, so rough that it turns into a fight or some kind of aggression. Since you've spoken to Franz Wall, I'm sure he, he talked to you about some of that. I mean, you know, we've both, I think, been influential in getting that message across him more for non-human primates and me for other mammals, but some birds as well. So I think we can learn from uh, watching non-human animals, how they negotiate conflicts and um, they don't want to fight. People, people don't realize that if, if, even if you're a high-ranking animal, a dominant animal, if you fight and get injured, then you, know, you may have won the fight. But I always say you won the fight, but you lost the war. You may get injured. You may get sick. You may get um, an infection. You may not be able to um, reproduce. And you know, in Darwinian terms, that's really how and individual success is cashed out. So, so animals want to do everything they can to avoid fighting. I, and yes, they do fight. I always have people say, well, you know, we saw this fight, we saw that fight. Yes, they do fight, but they really, I believe at the individual level would rather resolve conflicts in a fair and nice way. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point that I think is often overlooked. Also developing that instinct of, to de-escalate it or deal with it in a, in a fair way rather than resorting straight to fighting and, and escalating conflict is a really interesting lesson for humans to take as well. Yeah, we need it today more than ever. I, I, I honestly believe that. We, we really need a lot more compassion and empathy and obviously social justice. Um, and it will go a long way in bringing people together and it will last for a really long time. Um, we don't, we, we don't need any more divisiveness and, and animals who depend on one another in a group, you, you know, they're mutually dependent on one another know that the integrity and cohesiveness of a group really depends on everybody um, playing their role and doing it fairly and uh, doing it nicely. Mm-hmm. I think another point that's interesting is, or as humans, Um, we definitely notice that we have a harder time empathizing with people who are different than us, who don't seem similar. Mm -hmm. And we we tend to drift towards people who we feel similar to. I'm wondering if the same phenomenon is kind of present in the animal world as well. Do animals tend to group themselves based on similarities and, and struggle a little bit when they have to branch out to those different or butt heads a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, the, the problem, of course, there is that and I'm talking about wild animals now, they tend to live in, 
you know, they, they can live in what we call multi-species groups, but, but they tend to live with members of their own species. And a lot of the social carnivores who I study really um, are living in extended family groups. You know, you could have, I always say a husband and a wife and their children from different years, because that's their relationship. So, for example, when I lived in the mountains, it was a fox family who I um, watched um, for at least five or six years. And it was the same mom, the same dad. They had pups each year. The pups from different years hung around and interacted with their younger and or older siblings. And so the differences that you see among animals tend to either be predators and prey, and, and they, they don't live. I mean, there's some examples of predators, you know, taking care of prey who they would normally eat, but it's pretty rare. Um, and there's also competition, you know, so you can have, when I studied wild coyotes and watch wild wolves, I mean, they can overlap in their ranges and maybe they can get along if there's plenty of food, but you don't want to get between a wolf and a coyote or a black bear and a wolf when there's food involved. So it's not like they're rejecting members or outgroup members. It's just that they're trying to survive and food is, off, is often limited. So um, I think it's a little more complex among non-human animals um, than human animals. And among non-human animals, you also see just appeasement. We call it appeasement behavior, maybe even some submission because they just know at some point, you know, when you're done and you're not going to get what you want, the best thing to do is move on. I mean, yeah. um, but your in-group, out-group question is really interesting from another point of view, because there's a researcher, um, Gordon Hudson in Canada, who looked at um, the way in which um, humans look at humans who are not like them, in-group, out-group. And a lot of the um, interactions with non-human animals are motivated by that same sort of speciesistic in-group, out-group um, difference. And, and once again, I'm hoping that these animals who are coming back into town will serve as a gateway species and people will say, okay, look, you know, I may not want to meet a wolf head on at midnight, but I also know that we could coexist in a much more peaceful fashion than we, are go than we going after them with, you know, guns and trying to harm them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, such an important uh, narrative today. Since that's something you're really advocating for and believing that humans should develop that relationship and that, that stature with animals, what do you think are key steps that we can implement, particularly in the next generation, to, so that they grow up with those values? Well, humane education. I mean, what you and I are doing now is a great example of what I really um, would um, favor. Um, I do a lot of work with Jane Goodall and Jane Goodall's Roots and Shoots groups mm -hmm. that or really are centered on respect and compassion for animals, people, and the environment. But really working with youngsters, even younger than you, I mean, just getting, getting them really interested in the natural world because, because the natural world is fascinating. I mean, I, I still watch, you know, the BBC Animal Planet and Blue Planet and Frozen Planet. And every time a new program comes out on Discover or PBS or BBC, I watch it and I'm always learning. And I've been doing this for a really long time. So I think engaging kids 
and rewilding them. You know, sitting in a classroom is unwilding. I, I wrote a book called Rewilding Our Hearts and have a section called Rewilding the Classroom. So getting, getting kids outside more and just appreciating our magnificent world. We, we live on a magnificent planet. Actually, when I was going to school, I went to kind of a more progressive school from, from my elementary through middle. And I remember we had this class that was called SEL, which stood for social emotional learning. And that was really based on tools that we needed to show empathy and compassion towards our classmates, who obviously were also human. But I think, um, <laughs> that, I think it's important to also start linking the two. And, and if you have a more holistic view of the earth itself, we can you know, see the compassion towards animals helps us be compassionate towards other humans who might be different than us. And you know, respecting the land of nature can really be a tool that helps us be respectful towards each other and, and live in harmony as a whole. So I think that holistic view of the earth that you're talking about is, is so important. Yeah, there's a movement called the One Health Initiative. And what the One Health Initiative puts forth is that caring for humans and non-humans goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And it's a very powerful message because I don't get it much anymore, but you know, you might because if you're interested in non-humans, so go look, why, why are you interested in non-human animals? We've got all these problems with human animals. And I always say, well, some people work with non-humans, some work with humans, but in fact, they feed one another. And so I really like the One Health Initiative of basically working with non-humans, humans, and what they call their shared environments. I mean, we're sharing space and time with other animals. Even in your room, you are, and even in my office, I am. But the problem is, is that a lot of humans, not all humans, a lot of humans don't care what happens to the non-humans with whom they're interacting. Mm -hmm. and, and so... I think that this pandemic is showing very clearly the importance of human, non-human relationships, friendly relationships. I mean, I, I really think that if there's any plus side to it, and I have to admit that um, it's hard to find a plus side, but if there is any plus side for the future, not for now, mm -hmm. your generation and generations that follow you, it's going to be the realization that we all live on the same planet. We share space, we share time, we share um, resources. And there's nothing lost. I mean, zero lost by being nice to other beings, both human and non-human. I mean, there's nothing lost at all. And sometimes people realize that when they're more tolerant and they're more open to coexisting with other animals, you really can. I mean, when I lived in the mountains, I had black bears and uh, cougars and mountain lions and bobcats and coyotes and foxes right at my door. And I met some of them up close and personal. I don't want to meet them again. I'm, I'm lucky. I'm sure, I'm sure I'm lucky that I survived, but we worked out in a number of instances, this coexistence so that I could go outside and this big black bear would watch me and I would wave and say, hi, um, always knowing that there was an escape route because I didn't want to be arrogant and think that it was, it was actually a large female and that she was my buddy, but, but we worked something out. Right. Um, That's you know, a great story. So, yeah. I mean, and you know, when I worked with coyotes, I mean, 
you know, you just need to respect their space and you need to respect that they have their own needs. And same with wolves in Yellowstone, you know, you just have to respect them for who they are and learn, learn who they are in terms of who they are, not who they are in terms of what they can do for us or in our interpretation of who they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, it's, it's so important to, to respect them um, without having a stake in, in what's in it for us. But at Absolutely. The, but at the same Sorry. time, um, such a, there's such an instinct to look out for ourselves first. But if we think even further ahead, you know, like you said, there's an incentive there's an incentive for both parties to respect each other because at, at the end of the day, it benefits our planet. It benefits us individually. So both there's kind and it of benefits others too. When you then have this, I call it like an umbrella of compassion, you know, and um, an empathy that really fosters coexistence. So it benefits everyone. I always say this, there's just nothing to be lost by being nice. I mean, sometimes you're nice and, it doesn't work out, but, but you haven't, I don't think I've ever lost anything by being nice, you know, and maybe I wanted to be someone's friend or do something and being nice didn't get me what I wanted, but, but big deal. I'm sure if I wound up yelling or screaming or fighting or arguing or demeaning them, I wouldn't have gotten what I wanted anyway. Yeah, so, absolutely. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. It's been really wonderful talking with you. I'm so appreciative of you uh, lending your time to be here with me today. Well, good luck to you. I mean, thank you for chatting. This is great. Thank you so much, Professor. That was Professor Mark Beckoff, Professor Emeritus of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, the co-founder of Ethologists for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, along with Dr. Jane Goodall, and the author of many fascinating books about the animal world. Thank you so much for listening and keep an eye out for more episodes where I will continue to explore the politics of the animal kingdom. This episode of Environmind was written and produced by me, Ananya Shreether. I'll see you next time.